Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So I'm going to get a little bit preachy here with today's music selection, which is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, performed by Judy Garland from the film Meet Me in St. Louis. It has been uh, a classic Christmas carol of the modern era ever since it was recorded by Frank Sinatra on his Christmas LP, A Jolly Christmas. And despite its minor key and plodding rhythm, it has been mistaken ever since for a happy song. It is not. To give you a little context, Meet Me in St. Louis is not, in fact, a Christmas film at all. It is a musical about a family in turn-of-the-century St. Louis, Missouri, hence the name, and about the family dramas that they all face in the year running up to the first ever World's Fair, which was held in St. Louis. It follows them through four different seasons, only one of which includes Christmas. The, uh, the main conflict in the, uh, in the story involves the two eldest sisters of the, the family. They are an upper-middle-class family. Their father is a lawyer in a successful firm. They have a sumptuous big house and one full-time uh, servant who isn't a living servant. She seems mainly to be the cook. And her other function is uh, giving smart aleck one-liners. One uh, the two eldest daughters, the, the younger of which is portrayed by Judy Garland, are, as you would expect from both the era the film was made in and the era it depicts, primarily concerned with marriage proposals. The older one especially, Rose, um, has a beau who is currently working in New York City, and they're con attempting to conduct a long-term relationship, and she is attempting to get him to commit to a marriage proposal. And, of course, in that era, women aren't allowed to be forward, so she has to keep trying to drop subtle hints and things, and it's, it's, the whole thing's really out of her hands. Meanwhile, Judy Garland's character falls in love with the boy next door, who's recently moved in. And they have a tumultuous up-and-down relationship because he seems to be a bit shy and a bit dim about get, taking hints from the opposite sex. And, of course, she is also not allowed to be forward and declare her feelings. Um, the, the main crisis comes along in October, in fact, on Halloween night. When their father returns home from the office late, after lots of Halloween shenanigans have already gone on, and declares that he's being made a partner in the law firm, and that um, by the end of the year, they will all be moving to New York City, where he is to take over the management of their New York office. Uh, this is met with lots of consternation from the entire family. It basically throws a spanner in everybody's life. For some reason, it seems to be troubling to Rose as well, even though her 
her prospective uh, husband is actually already in New York. So presumably their relationship would be easier. But um, Judy Garland's character is particularly put out that she's going to have to move away from her boy next door before she's really managed to make any progress with him. And uh, this kind of becomes the main topic um, culminating on Christmas. Now, the plan for their moving was that they are going to spend Christmas Day in their own house and then move to New York promptly the day after. In the UK, the day after Christmas is Boxing Day and is also a public holiday. Um, but obviously in America, it's just the day after Christmas and has no particular sanctity or significance. Um, the The girls are allowed one more time to attend the uh, annual Christmas ball. And after the Christmas ball, Judy Garland finally gets her marriage proposal from her boy next door. Um, obviously, he's aware that they're supposed to be moving the next day or the day after because it's a Christmas Eve. So they're going to have one more day in the house, but that will be Christmas Day and then they'll be moving away. So their plan is to marry very hurriedly so that Judy Garland will be able to stay in St. Louis um, with her new husband. Obviously, that's, that's a major change in her plans for her life, but it also represents a change in his plans. He was going to go to university and I believe be an engineer, and he basically is going to chuck that and just get whatever job he can and just you know become an ordinary guy with a job. And uh, Judy Garland, at the last minute, realizes that this could potentially ruin both their lives and makes one of the most mature decisions her character makes throughout the film, which is having got what she wanted, she now denies it. She realizes that if it has to come this way, then it's not going to work. So she goes home, having just decided that she's not going to marry the love of her life, and finds their uh the family's youngest child the uh precocious and somewhat morbid five-year-old tootie who uh often pretends that her dolls are dead or dying of fatal illnesses she's still up waiting for santa claus um apart from a few sparse christmas decorations and some wrapped presents Everything in their house is packed up in boxes because they're going to move the day after tomorrow. So it's not a very comfortable looking house. They had built a really elaborate snowman on their lawn, one representing each member of the family. And uh, as, as Judy Garland speaks with Tootie, it becomes increasingly clear that she's very upset about them moving the next day, and she begins to sing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas to comfort this poor, troubled five-year-old. And it's basically a song about making the best of a bad situation. The lines she sings are, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, let your heart be light, because obviously her heart is heavy. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. So, it's admitting that they're not having a good time now, but maybe next year, maybe next Christmas when they're settled in their new home and they've got used to it, maybe they'll feel better. The next line, have yourself a merry little Christmas, make the Yuletide gay, next year all our troubles will be miles away. Now that has two meanings. It could be just an echo of the first line, 
that, hey, our troubles, we won't have the same troubles next year. But since the family themselves will be miles away next year, their troubles de facto will also be miles away. So it's it's really not as comforting as it could be. But, you know, what do you expect? Judy Garland's not feeling very happy in this scene either. And then comes one of the most crucial differences between Judy Garland's original and pretty much every single cover version of the song. The, uh, I guess it's the bridge. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, is what Judy Garland sings, faithful friends who were near to us will be dear to us once more. This means that all the people we're used to seeing at Christmas time will be far away from us next year. We won't have them in our lives physically, but we will take some time and remember them and miss them. Which again is only mildly comforting and uh, is completely honest and upfront about the predicament the entire family is in. What this usually gets changed to is... um, here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. So this is basically saying that we are going to meet all our old friends and family. You know, makes it an unambiguously happy line. Of course, the uh, climax of the song comes when the verse returns. And Judy Garland's original line is, Someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Meaning that, hey, you know, if we're lucky, we might actually get to see our friends again someday. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Again, she's like, look, I can't tell you that we're not in a bad place right now, because we are. We're just going to have to stick together and get through it to the best of our ability. Now, it's because of that line in particular that the song changed. Because for some reason, Frank Sinatra wanted to record it. There's no reason why he should have to. I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of Christmas songs, or he could have probably paid somebody to write a new Christmas song. But he wanted to do that song. And he said, you know, in the studio, hey, this record's called A Jolly Christmas. So how about we jolly up that line? And he was specifically referring to until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. And that line is now hang a shining star upon the highest bow. So with that, he basically ruined um, the climax of this film, which is a a pretty famous musical. It also features a clang, clang, clang with the trolley. And has basically been selling a big sugar-coated lie to everybody who uh, listens to it. Um, I don't know of any cover versions that keep the original lyrics. So on my Christmas playlist, I have Judy Garland's original, and it's the only version of this song that I allow played in my house. Um, why? I don't know. I'm a bit of a downer. Um, I'm one of those people who does get pretty depressed around Christmas. Also, uh, I moved around a lot when I was a kid, so I know what it's like to suddenly not have people in your life when you're used to spending the holidays with them. So I really relate to the mood of that scene. 
and the uh, the sentiment of that song. Also, Judy Garland is an incomparable singer, and it's nice to hear her sing a song, even if it's that depressing. Um, spoiler alert, after she finishes the song, young five-year-old Tootie flips out, runs out into the lawn, uh, wearing just her nightdress, destroys all the snowmen, screaming that if she can't take them with her, then nobody's going to have them. Um, obviously, this makes a big ruckus. It's past midnight on Christmas Eve. The uh, patriarch of the family sees what distress that this move um, has put his, particularly his youngest daughter and really the entire family in and changes his mind and says, look, I don't care how excited you were about moving to New York. We're staying right here. You know, a lot of people don't think that St. Louis is as good as New York, but it is. And hey, we're about to host the World's Fair. You know, soon we're going to be the biggest city in the entire world. And of course, this is just him pretending to be laying down the law when really his family have uh, wanted to uh, stay put the entire film. So they don't have to move. The final scene shows uh, Judy Garland and the boy next door happily dating, but, you know, saving hardcore marriage and stuff until they're both ready for it. They're attending the World's Fair, which is everything everybody's ever dreamed. And they all, oh yeah, Rose gets her marriage proposal too. And they all live happily ever after. Yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a the yuletide game next year all our troubles will be miles away once again as in olden days happy golden days of your Yourself a merry. 
So a thing that I uh, picked up recently was uh, Bill Webb's Book of Dirty Tricks. Um, I've had my eye on that for a long time. Um, just uh, a great like compilation of uh, game mastering advice from a very experienced game master whose style and approach um, is something that I'm kind of interested in imitating and learning from. Um, and the great thing, you know, is that he makes it clear that these dirty tricks, they're not, they're not just to screw your players for no reason. They're there to improve player skill. Um, and he talks about, as an example, he talks about his kids running games for his kids and about how he ran a game for his, uh, his daughter and two evil clerics cast sticks to snakes. So his daughter responded by casting snake charm and how that was a really proud moment for him. Um, and it got me thinking about like proud moments that I've had at the gaming table. Um, and there's one in particular, I wrote about it on my blog back when I was actually devoting some time to my blog, um, but I haven't talked about it on the podcast yet, so it's reasonably likely that some people won't have heard this story, but I was running none other than uh, Bill Webb's Adventure 1975, which is, is his introductory adventure for Swords and Wizardry. Um. I'm running it for for my son and my daughter um, because they want to go to Rappanathuk and they need to level up before they get to Rappanathuk. So I thought I'd put them on that and see if they can get some XP under their belt so that they're ready to to face what what will come next. <clears throat> and they explored the uh, the ogre lair and. Uh, after they defeated the ogre, they decided to have a look in the other, the, basically the, the, the cave forks, and one, one tunnel leads to the ogre's lair, and the other tunnel leads to the place where the ogre kind of stores his kills. So you have like some, you know, dressed out um, animals, I think humans as well. And it has a, a pool in it. Um, in the back of the of this cave, and water comes through a crack in the wall, flowing into the pool, and then it flows out through another crack. And you know that detail is given because Bill Webb knows how to design an area and what details are important. But for some reason, I think I was in a hurry and I didn't want to be that wordy. And I thought, well, my kids aren't gonna be bothered about too much detail anyway. So I just left out the detail of the other crack where the, where the water flows out. So they came in and I described the pool and I described the, the crack where the water flows into. And I expected them to just start looking for treasure and things. It wasn't a, a very high... It was, like Since they defeated the ogre and the black bear, there wasn't anything in there that was going to attack them. So it, there wasn't a lot of drama in this or tension. I, I thought they would just kind of get it done. But right away, my daughter's like, wait a minute, where does the water flow out from? And I said, oh, don't worry, there's a crack. You can see another crack where the water flows out. And she's like, oh, it's really relieved. She thought she just walked into a flooding room trap. And she was not about to start looking for treasure 
until she was sure it was safe. And I, and I realized, you know, two things. One, I should have given her that detail in the first place. Obviously, it was there for a reason. But also, like, that my daughter's a pretty good gamer because she thought of that on her own. She didn't, you know, make an investigation check. She listened to the description and interacted with it and asked sensible questions. And if there had been a flooding pit trap there or a flooding room trap, I don't think she'd have been caught by it. I think she would have escaped. You know, it's that kind of thinking that keeps players alive. That, you know, for her young age, she has good skills. Especially those kinds of skills, the kinds of skills where you where you listen to what's going on and think about what you would really do rather than just look at your character sheet. Of course, that also got me thinking of the other style of of D and D play, um, which I mean, you could call the Pathfinder style, maybe, because that is about rolling skill checks. And I think when we talk about player skill and contrast it to that skill check style of play, we are implying that there is no skill involved. And a long time ago, I had been I've been trying to collect my thoughts for a blog post or something about what kind of skill actually is involved in a game like Pathfinder or or even 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons if you're really heavy on the skill mechanics and you resolve everything with skill checks. But I'm, I'm especially going to be thinking of Pathfinder in this because for me, other people might disagree, but for me, Pathfinder is the polar opposite of an old school game. It just It's just not how... Everything that you think about with old school D&D, that's just not how Pathfinder works. So my experience with Pathfinder started, um, it was a forum game. So it was kind of like a, like a play-by-post. There was like a writer's forum and everybody was going to uh, post their moves through the forum. And the uh, the game master said, when you're ca- creating your character, you can use any single book that pa- that Paizo has ever published. So there was there was no no vetoing of any of the Splat books. And you know when you look at like the complete Pathfinder, that's a lot of material. And uh, I ended up playing something pretty pretty basic a human cleric but i did look through all like the advanced races the advanced classes you know i i studied all the feats including all the feats in the splat books to make sure that when i you know since i was a human i got an extra feat so i wanted to make sure i chose feats that i was going that were going to give me access to other feats that would be more useful along the way and things like that you know it's it was quite an undertaking. It's a lot more work than I'm used to putting into character creation. Even, I mean, even considering fifth edition, there's still, there's more choices and more work that goes into, uh, into Pathfinder. 
Um, the other thing is they, they had a, a homebrewed dice rolling system to create very powerful characters. And that's not normally my thing. But for this game, I thought, well, you know, I've never played a high-powered character before. Maybe, maybe it's more fun than I think. Maybe I'll try it and I'll like it so much it'll become the way that I prefer to play from now on. And if not, at least I've done it. Um, if you're into super high-powered characters and you want to know what they did, this is what they did. So it starts at, with 4d6 and drop, um, just like standard 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Um, if you get any 1s on your 4d6, re-roll it. If it comes up a 1 again, re-roll it again. If it comes up a 1 a third time, call it a 6. And I mention this because it happened to me. <laughs> While I was rolling up a character, I got three 1s in a row, and I'm like, okay, well that's a 6 according to the rules. If you have two twos, so you roll your 46 and two of them are two, re-roll them both. And if any of them comes up a one, then you go through the, the rigmarole of re-rolling the ones. So basically, you're gonna, it's 46, but artificially higher results than you would even normally get. You do that seven times, then you pick the sixth highest overall scores Put them where you want, add racial bonuses, and there's your character. Um, if I remember right, my stats were... I had an 18, a 16, a 14, and... No, two 14s and a 12. I might have had two 16s and one 14. I definitely had two 12s. So my lowest score, my dump stat, was still a plus one. So this is way higher than I uh, than I expected. This method does not guarantee that you will get super high stats, because if you're ever rolling for stats, there's no way to guarantee that you'll get great stats. After all, you can't re-roll threes or fours. Um, and one person still wasn't happy with his stats, and the game master's like, <clears throat> just start again. I throw my stats out if it doesn't have at least two 18s. So my, for me, super high-powered character would have been underpowered for him. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a little bit wary of combat because I thought it was just going to be a pushover, and I don't like pushover combats. Um, we were running Rise of the Rune Lords, if you're familiar with that adventure path. So the goblins attacked, and I thought, well, here we go. We'll just mop these goblins up. But the thing is, we rolled really poorly, and the goblins rolled really well. Um, somebody even dropped, and I was the cleric, so I had to burn a healing spell um, to get him back up. So it was a much more difficult fight than I was expecting, which for me was a good thing. I was like, yeah, this game is awesome. I thought it was just I thought we were just going to walk through everything without breaking a sweat, but this has been challenging. We had to we had a plan of attack and it didn't work out and we had to come up with a plan B on the spur of the moment and stuff. And then, you know, while we were <clears throat> catching our breath, a second wave of goblins attacked. <clears throat> and um our wizard who was actually the partner of the game master and so therefore another another one with a big fan of these high-powered characters. Um, he had burnt some spells in the first fight. He burnt one of his spells in the first fight, um, and it hadn't worked out, and he only had grease left. 
and he cast grease. There was a goblin dog, um, and he cast grease so that it would catch the dog, and the dog kept failing its deck save and slipping in the grease so it couldn't charge it. So the dog ended up never doing anything. And for me, that was the spell of the day. You know, that dog could have caused us some problems, but he shut it down with grease. But he, I guess grease wasn't pyrotechnic enough for him. So he's, he trashed that character following that fight. He's, he said, I'm going to roll. We've only just started. I'm going to roll up a brand new character and just trash this one. Because he, the, we won the fight, we, you know, and nobody died. The only one person dropped and I got him back up by burning a healing spell. So for me, it was great, you know. We won it, but it wasn't easy. But I guess that's the thing. I think for him, it it was a failure because it was it wasn't easy. And I started to think about these things. I started to think about how complex the character creation system is in Pathfinder. And he was really good. Like the the the, the person who played the the wizard. He gave lots of advice. He he like he clearly knew everything that synergizes with everything else. And you know, we 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 were all discussing our our character creation choices in the forum and he he knew he knew all the feats and all the feats that work with other feats and the best, you know, the best way to get, you know, the best race to play with each class and how to qualify for the prestige classes and hybrid classes and stuff and which ones sound like a good idea, but actually in practice don't end up, you know, he like he was, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of character creation, but he couldn't handle not, you know, mopping up a group of goblins without taking any damage at all. You know, he thought, I guess he thought he should have just blown them away you know, with a, a flick of his wand. And it reminded me of somebody who puts a lot of work into building a Magic the Gathering deck. And they think, man, this deck is unassailable. I'll be, I'll be able to beat any other deck with this. And then they take it to a tournament and they lose. You know, somebody's deck beats them. And then they go home and they trash that deck. They just like break it apart and start again from scratch because it wasn't good enough. And, you know, Wizards of the Coast put a lot of work into making sure that it is not possible to build one deck that can beat any other deck. And I'm sure Paizo put the same amount of work into making sure that it is not possible to build one character that can handle any situation without... Uh, without any problem. But that doesn't stop players looking for that one perfect Magic the Gathering deck. It doesn't stop players trying to build that one super character that cannot be defeated by anyone or anything, even at low levels. And that's when it occurred to me that Pathfinder is basically Magic the Gathering. And you think about, you cannot be a great Magic player if you don't have a good grasp of the the deck building aspect of the game. I mean, because magic cards can be quite expensive, you also need a a pretty full wallet as well. But let's just leave that aside. Um, You have to be a good deck builder to be a great magic player. And similarly, I think if you're going to be successful playing Pathfinder or 3.5, from which it's derived... You have to have a solid grasp of the character creation system. You have to be good 
at character creation. I think the balance of Pathfinder assumes that you have built a pretty powerful character. I don't think Pathfinder or or even 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons is balanced for underpowered characters. Characters who have maybe, you know, more than one penalty in their stat blocks or no bonuses or one measly bonus like plus 1 or plus 2. You know, I don't I don't think that's how the game is meant to work. And if you contrast that with, you know, OD&D, Swords and Wizardry, one of those what OD&D or one of the clones where your stats are never going to give you that big a, a bonus. You're if you're rolling 3d6 down the line or otherwise, you're very likely going to have some pretty mediocre stats. You might luck out and get one or two really good ones, but you're not going to have across the board. Um, you're not going to have good stats across the board. Everyone's going to have to put up with some <clears throat> some sevens and some threes and well, a three is pretty rare, but some sevens and some sixes and an eight and things like that. <clears throat> so the skill of OD and D is how to play well and survive in spite of your stats. And that's all about character. That's all about player decision and player skill. But there is a skill involved in Pathfinder. It's the skill of understanding the copious and complex mechanics of the game and optimizing. So so that, you know, when you go into a room, you roll your investigation check. And because of your bonuses, you're highly likely to find anything that you need to find. And you don't have to listen to the room description. You can find that secret door just by rolling some dice. But that wouldn't work if your stats are crap. It's a, it is a skill. It's just a different skill. And one's not better than the other. You know, I ran a game for a friend of mine. It was a one-on-one game. And there was a secret door that could only be opened by solving an actual riddle, an honest-to-God riddle. On the other side of that door was some magic armor, some magic leather armor that anybody could wear, even a spellcaster. All you had to do was solve the riddle. I read the riddle out. She's like, I'm not good at riddles. And that was it. So she never got that magic item. You know... That's an instance where the player skill system breaks down. If your players aren't into it or up for it, or the people at the table literally don't have the skill set, then they can't play the game. And they maybe she maybe would have done better if I had allowed some kind of skill check. After all, it probably would have been intelligence based, and she was a wizard, so she had high intelligence, you know, but that wasn't the game I was running. So, you know. There are all different play styles and all different skill sets that can come into a role-playing game. And the important thing is to make sure that it works for everybody at the table. It may not be, and it probably won't be, everybody's favorite style of playing. But as long as everybody at the table can enjoy the style of play, you know, there are some things that I definitely would not enjoy and I would just rather not participate. Personally, I don't want to sit around in a highly dramatic you know, heavy role-playing thing where we're always speaking in character and where a big part of the, the the point of being there is to um, dramatically portray our characters, you know, as if it's like an improv acting session. That's not, that's not for me. 
Um, I still view D&D as mostly a game, and I want to play the game. Um, and I think I would get really bored if all we did all day was sit around for hours and hours speaking in character. But some people, that's what they want to do. That's what they like best. So I also probably, I don't think I want to just have hours and hours of combat. But some people that, you know, the more combat, the better, I'm sure. I don't like rules lawyers, but I think some people might really enjoy a game where you frequently spend a lot of time with, shall we say, passionate discussions of the game mechanics and how they work. I'm sure that there's a group out there that that's their game and they like it. So as long as it works for everybody, you know, for me, I definitely prefer the stripped down player skill orientated approach. That's the game that I want to run and that's the game that I want to play in. But there is a skill in the opposite end as well. It's just not a skill set that I have. So that's all for me today. Um, Until next time, play well and let the dice fall where they may. Today's episode of DM Dad was brought to you by the letter B and the number nine. Now, seriously, uh, Colin Green of Spike Pit had mentioned that uh, instead of... uh, sponsoring uh random products that don't have anything to do with gaming that we might uh instead consider sponsoring each other sponsoring other podcasts and other products and uh today i would like to talk to you about uh gilligan's island of add a podcast by shane ward hopefully you're already listening to it if not uh definitely check that out it's entertaining i always enjoy it Um, On the most recent episode that I heard, uh, he talked about how he has submitted a Return of the Blue Baron for an Ennie. Obviously, we're still quite a ways away before next year's uh, voting for next year's Ennies opens. But I definitely plan on casting my vote for that product. And I would definitely recommend you consider doing the same. And also, if you haven't got it already, uh, head on over to uh, DriveThruRPG and uh, check it out. Um, I have it, along with the uh, original Blue Baron. I like it a lot, and I can't wait to run it. Um, Just really good, fun, creative design.